Hello and welcome to Nufiken. I'm Irina and I'm talking to David. Hi, how's it going? Hi, David. David has recently finished his thesis at Stockholm University at the Department of Biology with a thesis called Regulation of the Bacterial Cell Cycle in Response to Starvation. That's correct, yes. In particular, within biology, you worked in microbiology. Let's start with this. How would you define the field? That's a good question. Microbiology is generally used to refer to the study of single-celled organisms. So that can mean uh, prokaryotes, but also eukaryotes, fungi. In your case, bacteria. Yes, in my case, bacteria. I think there's something we should address before going into the content of your thesis, and that is, why are you studying bacteria? Why am I studying bacteria? Well, they're incredibly numerous. They're the most probably the most flexible form of life. They can inhabit pretty much uh, any niche, draw on any possible source of energy other forms of life can't do. And um, they're interesting. They're extremely diverse. So much variation among bacteria, much more than amongst uh, plants or animals. And we don't know that much about them. But they have been studied for a long time, haven't they? Well, they have, but you could also argue that they haven't been studied for a long time. Before the first uh, microscope was invented, we didn't even know they existed. So compared to the amount of time that's been spent studying humans and animals and plants, it's not such a long time. I get the impression from your thesis that there are a lot of things you haven't figured out about bacteria, especially about what's going on inside the bacteria at a molecular level. That's the other thing, is that um, these are things that have only become possible recently over the last 50 years because of the tools needed to, to study things at a molecular level. Your title says that you are studying bacteria in response to starvation. Let's start with the last part. What is starvation? Most bacteria growing in an external environment, so not growing inside a, a human cell or something like this, they're at the mercy of the environmental conditions and they take up nutrients from the environment surrounding them. When they don't have enough nutrients to grow and divide, then uh, this is what we call starvation. So in some sense, starvation is the natural condition of bacteria in nature, but you grow them in the lab, right? Yes, we grow them either on a solid medium, which is made with petri dishes, or we grow them in flasks with liquid broth. So in fact, you are growing your bacteria with plenty of nutrients to start with. Yes, usually we would do this in a, a liquid culture. And if I understand this correctly, as long as they have nutrients, they will go at an exponential rate one day. Yes, so as long as they have nutrients and the other conditions appropriate, they will grow at an exponential rate. There are other things that can stop them from growing. For example, the um, pH of the medium can increase or decrease and that can stop them from growing. But given uh, optimal conditions with uh, sufficient nutrients, they will grow exponentially. And you then intentionally starve them by withdrawing nutrients. What happens when you do this? Do they stop growing? Depending on which nutrients you've withdrawn, the, the bacteria stop growing. Uh, they can be more or less abrupt. It can be within... A matter of minutes or can take hours before they stop growing. And once you begin to starve them, they stop growing. Uh, yes, yeah, that's correct. And after a while, uh, they might start dying off and the uh, numbers will decrease. But a whole lot of changes happen when they enter starvation. Internal changes within the cell, but also the cell shape can change. For example, some bacteria like E. coli, they become a lot smaller under starvation conditions. So when we are talking about the growth slowing down, is this the number of cells or the mass that is going down? We're talking about both here. So during exponential growth, cells have a constant mass, roughly, per cell. This is called steady-state growth, so everything about the cell remains the same. So the number and uh, cell mass are obviously proportional. As growth stops, 
in a lot of bacteria, the cells become smaller, so it's both the number of cells and the total cell mass. You are looking at two species of bacteria, E. coli and Sicarescentus, or Colobacter. Are these some of the most well-known or some of the more obscure ones? So E. coli is definitely one of the most well-known. I think everyone recognizes the name E. coli. It's one of the most well-studied bacteria, so we, it's what we call a, a model organism. It's been studied for over 100 years. It's also one of the most abundant bacteria in the human intestine, and it grows readily with uh, pretty much any nutrient source. So it's no coincidence that it was discovered early on and that um, it's it's easy to work with in the lab as well. So um, these are things that it's got going for it. And of course, the more knowledge we uh, gather over one organism, the easier it is to study that organism because the more we know about the other things that are going on in the cell and the more tools, genetic tools, for example, we have to manipulate the organism. There's definitely a lot of advantage to studying an organism that's already been well studied. A secrescentus is a model organism, but it's more of an up-and-coming model organism. And about Colobacter in particular, and we'll discuss this in more depth in a minute, but you are also looking at it in its natural environment. Yes. One of the studies that went into my PhD, we actually decided to look at natural environments where Colobacter is present. It's quite a ubiquitous organism. It's present in uh, freshwater and in soil uh, pretty much everywhere. If you take a glass of tap water, you can probably find Colobacter in it. We decided that um, we had uh, discovered this phenomenon with cells becoming really filamentous and drastically changing their morphology. And we wanted to really just see if this is something that might be happening in the natural environment. Is it unusual to study bacteria in their environment rather than in the lab? I have the impression from your thesis that this is just starting to grow as a field. Yes, whether it's unusual, I think people have been doing this um, and um, there's been a lot of bacteria isolated from different environments. A lot of sequencing studies have been done to find out which bacteria are actually present in, um, in natural environments. One of the interesting things is that um, it's only a very small fraction of the bacteria that are found in natural environments that we can even study in the lab because most of them are what's known as unculturable. That means that we don't know how to grow them in lab conditions. So the only way we can obtain them is by taking sample from the, the natural environment. I see. So you cannot just take any bacteria, put them in this liquid environment or on a petri dish, give them infinite amount of nutrients, and they will grow exponentially. No. In fact, it's not a coincidence that the bacteria that we um, work on tend to be omnivores, if you will, or very flexible, metabolically enabled to grow in the lab. Um, these were bacteria that people isolated originally precisely because they're, they're able to grow in these lab conditions. And there's been a lot of work done on trying to study these other, these non-cultural organisms, but uh, it's quite difficult to study something that you can't grow in the lab. Going back to the lab... We've covered starvation. You are interested in the regulation of bacterial cell cycle under conditions of starvation. What is the bacterial cell cycle? Cell cycle refers to all the processes that contribute to one cell giving rise to two daughter cells. So there's a number of processes that have to take place before this can happen. The genetic material, the chromosome, uh, usually this is, in most bacteria, this is just one circular chromosome, but it can be more. This needs to be replicated. And then there needs to be a mechanism to ensure that uh, each daughter cell inherits a chromosome. And we call this segregation. And then there needs to be um, cell division. So there needs to be a, a septum, a wall formed somewhere near the center of the cell usually. Eventually, this 
becomes complete and the, then you have two separate entities, two separate cells which are able to grow independently. So the cell cycle refers to the processes of genome replication, segregation and cell division. At the same time, and this is necessary for continued growth, you need increase in mass of the cells so the cells are growing at the same time as this is all happening. So these three steps involved in the cell cycle, the copying of the genetic material, the separation of the two copies, and then the division of the cell. Do this happen one after the other, or is there an overlap? These things can overlap, especially in the case of E. coli, it can grow very rapidly, and then you have all of these processes happening at the same time. The question that you are interested in investigating is the regulation of this cell cycle. What does regulation mean? We talk about regulation in the biological context. We're talking about the mechanisms that, that control when process happens. For example, regulation of DNA replication means under what conditions does DNA replication take place? How are these processes controlled? And these cell cycle processes are very strictly controlled. It's very important that they happen at the right time. So you can't have segregation until you've replicated the genome. And if you have cell division without having had uh, genome replication and segregation, then you're going to end up with a non-viable daughter cell that has no chromosome. So it's very important that these things are correctly regulated. So there's a lot of mechanisms and even redundant mechanisms that work to make sure that everything happens in the uh, right order. And in the case of starvation conditions, the cell cycle is regulated in the sense that division is slowed down or stopped. Yes. So, I mean, you could think about it in a very simple way that when there's no nutrients available at all, that everything simply stops because there's no source of energy anymore. Everything that's happening in the cell stops. But this is actually not the case. So if the cell were to completely be depleted of energy, it would die and not be able to continue growing when nutrients become available again. So actually this, this process of responding to starvation is regulated. There are a lot of things that happen in the cell to ensure that growth stops before the cell is completely exhausted of energy so that the cell is able to enter a state where it can survive and ensure that it is able to begin growing again when nutrients become available. So the response to starvation is not just degradation and that it's a very sophisticated and complex response that actually preserves the cells. Yes, that, that's correct. And also this response varies amongst different bacteria. Depending on their lifestyle, there might be different responses that are most advantageous. For example, a well-known example is the soil bacterium. And under some starvation conditions, it begins to produce spores, which are extremely resistant small cells, if you will. They contain everything that's needed to germinate and begin growing again. But they're extremely resistant to chemical stress, heat stress. They can survive for thousands of years. So... Um, this is one mechanism that one bacterium uses to cope with these conditions, but other bacteria respond in different ways. But it's true for all of them that growth stops. Growth essentially has to stop. Uh, if there's no raw materials to power it, then it's uh, impossible. It's also the case that inappropriately continuing to grow when nutrients limiting could also lead to the cell death. For example, if you begin replicating chromosome and uh, there's not enough resources to complete this, this can be uh, quite uh, catastrophic for the, for the cell. So in the case of the two bacteria you study, E. coli and Colobacter, can you tell me what are the timelines? For how long did you grow them? The rate of growth depends very strongly on the conditions in which it's grown, especially temperature and the nutrients that are available. 
But um, the maximum rate that we can achieve in the lab uh, for E. coli is a doubling every 20 minutes. And for Colobacter, it's around 90 minutes. Uh, however, if you use different nutrients, for example, this can be much, much slower. It could be several hours, days even. However, for most of the experiments in um, my PhD, we use the optimal conditions where they grow as fast as possible to keep everything on a reasonable time scale. And because this is also the conditions that have been most um, most studied, so we can use uh, other people's results here to help us interpret our results. For growth to completely stop takes about a day. So most of the experiments were done over eight hours or so. For the longer term experiments, we also looked at what happens uh, after overnight incubation. And um, then we also looked at the, the late stationary phase as well. And we defined this as a couple of weeks of uh, being kept in the in the medium with uh, where the nutrients have been exhausted. When you when you're doing an experiment that takes a couple of weeks, you need to plan things a bit carefully because you need to remember to come back and uh, take the samples at the right time. You need to be a bit on the ball there to keep everything uh, running nicely. Uh, this is a common theme in microbiology. Planning is an important part of it. So I'll go back and ask about the experimental techniques and how exactly you look inside the cell. But first, let's discuss the findings. The mechanisms that regulate the cell cycle, have you found it, first of all? Or have you found components of it? There's no one mechanism, and this is something that's been worked on for over 40 years. There are a lot of different mechanisms uh, that all they are all interconnected and work together. In Colobacter, we discovered a mechanism to ensure that DNA replication doesn't uh, happen when cells are starved. And this is uh, something new that, that wasn't known before. So what we discovered is that the essential replication initiator protein DNA. So first I should go back and explain that. This is not the case in all bacteria, but in these bacteria, the rate-limiting step for replication of the chromosome is the initiation of this process. So once the process has been set in motion, it continues to completion. And uh, the gatekeeper, if you will, for this um, beginning this process is a protein called DNAA, the initiated protein. And this protein is essential for this process to begin. So without DNAA, you won't get initiation of DNA replication. And what we discovered is that under conditions of starvation, there's a mechanism which ensures that DNAA is no longer produced. And DNAA is uh, constantly degraded. It has a quite a short half-life. And this ensures that when starvation happens, DNAA is no longer produced. And this leads to its elimination, which prevents any further uh, rounds of replication being initiated. This is the case in Colobacter. In E. coli, it seems that um, replication also ceases when uh, starvation uh, kicks in. However, DNAA remains present, uh, at least at the start, so there, there's another mechanism that's involved there, uh, which we have yet to discover. What are other tentative mechanisms that people are looking at? There's a lot of other factors that affect this process. There's other proteins that also bind to this origin region, and there's proteins uh, that interact with DNAA and affect its activity. So there's a lot of possibilities for what this mechanism might be. It's not DNAA alone that controls this process. However, DNAA is essential for it. It's essential, but it's not sufficient. So when you started on E. coli, did you expect to find the same mechanism as in Colobacter? Uh, actually, yes. I was quite sure that the mechanism would be the same as in Colobacter, actually, because uh, the mechanism in Colobacter, it involves something called an untranslated leader 
so it's getting a bit technical, but you have the, the mRNA that's produced from the DNA. And in the case of Colobacter, there's a, a very long leader on this RNA. We found that this leader is important for the decrease in DNA production, which occurs as cells enter starvation. And we found that there's also a similarly long leader region in E. coli. So we thought, wow, maybe this is a conserved mechanism. But uh, as we found, at least under the conditions that we tested, this leader doesn't seem to be involved in, uh, in regulating DNA production. So your results for Colobacter came first and were part of the motivation for why you looked at DNA in E. coli. Well, this was, no, this is one of the motivations, but um, another like a bigger motivation is that we wanted to discover, wanted to find out whether this is a, like a universally conserved mechanism, whether this might be different in a bacterium that has a different lifestyle and uh, also has evolved independently uh, for a very long time span, but still has a lot of conserved components in common. So it still has this system with DNA A and the origin. And there's a lot of similarities between the different uh, between the proteins and these organisms, despite a long period of uh, independent evolution. So it's really just uh, how how uh, universal is this mechanism? Are there other ways of achieving the same thing? And the answer seems to be yes. Yes, and the, the answer seems to be that the bacteria respond in pretty much the same way to starvation by quite quickly arresting the cell cycle and DNA replication. But it does seem the mechanisms they use to get there. A different. So let's talk about the lab work a bit. How do you look inside the cell? How do you look at the DNA A? That's one of the main mechanisms we use for looking at whether DNA A is present or not and how much is there as a mechanism of Western blotting. And you have uh, an antibody that recognizes the protein you're interested in, in this case DNA A. You take an extract from the cell of the proteins from the cell, you separate them, and then you effectively probe it with this antibody. So you put it in a a solution with this uh, antibody and the antibody will bind where the protein is present and then you use some uh, chemical methods to visualize where this antibody has bound and how much of it has bound and this way you can get an idea of how much of the protein is present in different samples. I'm going to ask you about the antibodies because I think it will be interesting for the listeners. How do you get the antibodies? Yeah, the antibodies, these are made uh, usually in rabbits. A rabbit is immunized with a small amount of the protein that you want to generate antibodies to, and its immune system will then uh, respond to this, sort of like a vaccination, and uh, then you can take the blood from the rabbit, and this will contain the antibody. This is quite an error-prone process, and it's quite uh, difficult to get this to work sometimes, depending on the protein. And for your study, you did this Western blotting at different stages in the growth process. Exactly, yes. And in this way, we could see the decrease in DNA levels. Just a number of methods to control to make sure that the method itself is working. So test other proteins that we know should remain constant. And we also look at the total amount of protein. I have a technical question. How did you determine that DNA A isn't being produced anymore rather than it is being degraded faster? What we did is we measured the rate of degradation, which is something that you can do by adding an antibiotic to the cells, which prevents protein from being synthesized. And from that point on, you know, no, no new protein can be made. So any protein that's present in the cell was present at the start. And then you can measure, for example, for an hour, the levels of the protein of interest. And this way you can determine its uh, half-life because no new protein is being produced to interfere with your measurements. Conducting these studies seems to depend on being able to prepare the sample many times in identical conditions. Yes, we try and keep everything as reproducible as possible, keep the conditions the same, take the uh, samples when the cells have reached the same phase. 
Okay, I understand. And this sounds like it would be reasonably feasible for bacteria you have grown in the lab. But now let's get to the last study that went into your PhD, where you looked at bacteria taken from lakes. How can you control these conditions? So we didn't do any molecular studies of bacteria isolated from the environment. This is very difficult because the uh, methods we're using, for example, is Western blotting, relies on having a very high concentration of the bacteria, and this is just uh, not really feasible. So what do you think is the outlook of the field in general? So we've come a long way the last 40, 50 years in terms of understanding basic cell cycle processes, like really how does a bacterial cell make a new bacterial cell? But there's still a lot of things we really do not understand, like how exactly is the timing of DNA replication controlled? What is the molecular mechanism that the molecular mechanisms that feed into this is something we really still do not understand. So there's a lot of very fundamental questions that still need to be answered. And I think a lot of progress is being made. We'll know a lot more about this in the future. There's so much diversity in bacteria. We've really only looked at a few lab organisms that, that are easy to work with in the lab. And I think there's just so much out there that works differently, that might uh, be completely different to what we know, that remains to be discovered. And by looking at what happens in, in natural environments, turning our focus to other bacteria, I think there's a, a lot of stuff to be discovered. From the perspective of someone from outside the field, what surprised me most when I read your thesis was how many things about bacteria are still not very well understood. Yeah, I don't know. I think people think bacteria are simple organisms and that they're easy to understand. And maybe it's true that they are potentially easier to understand, but really we um, don't really know what's going on uh, inside bacteria. Biological systems are so incredibly complex uh, that we're only really scratching the surface of what's going on inside. So the field will be around for a long time? That is a certainty. It's not going to be finished any time soon. Can you tell me before we wrap up how a regular day would look for you? Would you usually work alone or with people? Depending on the day, we might have a, a lab meeting or something, uh, discuss our findings with our colleagues. Uh, also a lot of informal discussions where we talk about new ideas and uh, results that don't make any sense and there's a lot of um, technical discussions so there's a lot of just getting methods to work is a lot of uh, a lot of the time is spent just on this um, why did this experiment not work and technical troubleshooting a lot of time spent in the lab so as we talked about before a lot of these experiments go over a long period of time so you're you're taking measurements every hour or so and in the meantime you do other things um, read research and uh, discuss things, analyze your data from previous experiments and stuff like this. So I think that's probably a very typical day. And uh, yeah, once you have enough results for a publication, then um, you start bringing everything together, preparing the article, which also takes a lot of time. During this process, you usually realize that there's a whole lot of other experiments that you need to do and you end up back in the lab again. And from what I've gathered from your description, it's pretty collaborative. You don't really work alone. Yes, um, it's very collaborative. I think uh, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, one of these projects and a lot of different uh, expertise is needed. Biology generally is a very collaborative field and you often have a lot of uh, authors. On. Thank you again, David, for joining us. Thank you too for giving me the opportunity. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Nufiken. This has been Irina talking to David Leslie 
who has finished his PhD in biology at Stockholm University. If you want to know more about David's research, you can find more information at our webpage, nufiken.co. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Curious Nufiken in one word. This episode was published in July 2020.